On this episode of AvTalk, we welcome back Andrew Poor, who fills us in on the hot new cargo route from Colombo to Columbus, and what he learned in flight dispatcher school. We also learn what a pickle fork is and why you don't want cracks in yours. Plus, the latest updates on the 737 MAX's return to service and stinky fruit leads to an emergency landing. Hello and welcome to episode 68 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz and hello Ian, I'm back. Hello Jason, welcome back. Thank you. How was your Asian adventure? It was fun. I Also Seattle, I threw in a little Pacific Northwest to spice things up a bit. There you go. And I guess we'll start at the end. You went to Vietnam and then went to Seattle and then on your flight back from Seattle to New York, you had... An empty middle seat? Vietnamese cuisine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah at SeaTac, the Priority Pass restaurant is a Vietnamese restaurant, which is just the icing on the cake for that trip. So tell everyone at home what you did, where you went, the pertinent details, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, pertinent details. So using Delta Sky Miles that I had to burn, which is only about 55000 I think, I flew LaGuardia, Detroit, Detroit, Seoul, Seoul, Hanoi, Hanoi, Ho Chi Minh City, Ho Chi Minh City to Da Nang, took a train up to Hue, Hue to Hanoi, back down, Hanoi, Seoul, Seoul, Seattle, Seattle, New York. Almost entirely on Airbus aircraft, actually, which is, well, didn't plan that way. But in order of flights, I flew an A321, A350-900, 787-9, A321neo, A320co, A321co, A350-900 again, A330-900neo, and A321co once again. So a wide variety of aircraft, which just happened to be almost entirely Airbus. And that was what, nine days? Yeah, something like that. So met our friend Seth Miller out there in Hanoi, and we just kind of bummed around Vietnam for a little bit. We flew some low-cost airlines out there just for funsies to say we did. So I flew Bamboo Airways on their 321neo, lucked out and actually got one of their aircraft because a lot of their flights are operated by other airlines like Cambodian or, or whatever. So happy to get their A321neo, which is actually my first flight on a Neo as a commercial passenger, which is pretty cool. Then we flew Jetstar Pacific on an A320. And then on the way back down, flew Vietjet on a 230-seat A321, which is bone-crunchingly dense. So uh, how many passengers does an A321 normally have? Uh, hovers around 200-ish, maybe even fewer if there's some sort of fancy business class up front. So uh, it's a compact product, shall we say. Yes, I took a slightly different approach to what Seth did, and I spent the literally dollars on purchasing extra legroom seats or exit row seats, and I have absolutely no regrets, because when you fly in Vietnam, tickets are stupid cheap, and seat assignments are stupider cheap. I'm talking like two and a half dollars US for an exit row, and I needed every inch of that infinite legroom seat on the uh, 321, because it, it would not have been a comfortable flight on Vietjet or even, in my eyes, safe because my knees would have been in the back of the seat in front of me. 
<laughs> I, I can just Im- imagine that and don't want it. No, no. But the Delta flights were great. The 350 was everything a 350 is supposed to be. I was back in economy on that flight. I still, in the waning days of my status with Delta, got an exit row seat with one of those window seats that doesn't have a seat in front of it. So it's effectively both an aisle and a window seat, which was great. That was a long flight, about 14 hours. We actually took a polar routing. So that was pretty cool. And on the way back was the A330neo, and I was lucky enough to fly up front in the new Delta Suites on that flight. So that was pretty cool. So you're back, you're refreshed, you're relaxed. Shall we get back into what you missed over the last couple of weeks? What did I miss? Well, I've got a new term for you, and it was new to me too. Does it start with the pickle P, fork? A pickle fork. Uh, a pickle fork. The hell is a pickle fork? That's a good question. It is not a fork and you don't use it on pickles. Oh, this is deceptive. It's getting confusing, I know. So to back up and address your question of what is a pickle fork? Well, Jason, I'll tell you. Oh, okay. It helps to hold the wing onto the plane. And it's called a pickle fork because it's shaped like everyone's favorite utensil, the pickle fork. That is a ridiculous name for an otherwise incredibly important part of the aircraft. Indeed. So we're talking about the Boeing 737 NG or or new generation aircraft. So the 737-600, 700, 800, and 900. We're not talking about the classics. So one, two, three, four, and five. And we're not talking about the max. It's just the, I guess, the third generation or, or, the bulk of every yeah. 737 flying out there today. Right. So so that chunk of aircraft has a device. There's a technical name for it, but the common name within Boeing and the aviation community, I, I don't know how common this is because we're coming upon it, but pickle fork because it's shaped like, think of like a, a if you squeezed a horseshoe. Or kind of like a wishbone shaped. But when they designed it and installed it, they called it a pickle fork because it looked like the fork that you use at a cocktail party to stab pickles out of a bowl or jar or something like that. I haven't been to many parties where there's a jar of pickles out, let alone forks specifically designed for the pickles. But we'll set that aside for a moment. The pickle fork is designed to help hold the wing onto the fuselage of the aircraft. So a rather important piece of the aircraft and in the process of converting a few 737-800s from passenger to freighter variant, so cutting a hole in the side, adding the large cargo door, doing some, some strengthening and things like that, they were inspecting the aircraft and they found cracks in these pickle forks. And so now they've gone through, and, and Jason, I think you sent me a report today that said roughly 5% of the inspected aircraft have been found to have cracks in their pickle forks. Yes. So Bloomberg put out an article saying that more than 5% of these aircraft that have underwent inspections so far in the past few weeks have found cracks in the pickle fork, which they say is a part that is never supposed to degrade or show signs of cracking or wearing like that. So that's concerning. Person familiar with the talk says a total of 493 aircraft have been inspected so far. 25 of them show evidence of cracking, which is not 
great. Not great at all. Apparently, Southwest has had to ground two of its aircraft, and they still have to inspect about 100 more under this directive, which is not something Southwest wants to hear since it has a good chunk of its fleet already grounded with the 7.3 MAX grounding. So this is adding up for airlines, which is just not not good. Yeah. So the FAA issued an airworthiness directive last week, and that directed airlines to inspect 737 NGs with over 30,000 cycles. So takeoff and landing, over 30,000 of those within seven days. And lower cycle times had a little bit larger interval to inspect those, but those need to be inspected as well if they have, I think, over 22,600 cycles. So that was the directive that came out last week. And so the the FAA estimated that there were about a little more than a thousand aircraft that would be affected by the airworthiness directive. So they need to be inspected and then those that have any cracking that issue needs to be resolved. Meanwhile, I just saw from Flight Global that the A380 has some issues with cracks in its trailing edge and trailing edge devices that its operators need to take a look at. So it's not just Boeing. Airbus has similar but different issues. But apparently this one is less, I would say, imminent in that the inspections need to be carried out within 147 months of the date of the aircraft manufacturer. So I guess many A380s are not impacted by that. No, Just, and the, just yet. Yeah. And the A380s had cracking issues in, in various places and of varying severity before. Oh, yeah. The older models have big problems with the wing cracks back in the day. I think Singapore had lots of issues with that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not an Airbus or Boeing thing. And and the thing is, is that we don't know why the pickle forks are cracking. Could be a materials issue. It, it could be a variety of issues that are causing the cracks. But obviously, those are going to get you know replaced as quickly as possible. So I guess it's you know good that that was discovered when it was, and hopefully that that problem is solved quickly. Because I mean, with with the Max sitting around, having NGs also sitting around would not be a good thing. What a ridiculous sentence! Cracking pickle fork. I mean that that's where we are these days. The cracking pickle. So let's move from one variant of the 737 to another and do our bi-weekly MAX update. Let's go. Is the MAX flying? It is not. No. Oh, okay. Then, Where are we now? Then, and we are, we are further out than we were two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Not to make light of the situation, but the Southwest Pilots Association has sued Boeing and they've, as you do in a lawsuit, they have thrown in the kitchen sink, basically, and said, this airplane's unsafe. You deceived us. We're suing you for $100 million in lost wage. Yeah. It's a 70-page complaint filed by the Southwest Airlines Pilots Association, and it accuses Boeing of misleading the airline and misleading the pilots association because the Southwest Pilots Association was renegotiating their collective bargaining agreement at the time the MAX was introduced. Boeing made representations about the MAX to the pilots association that basically said the 737 MAX is the exact same as 
the 737NG, which you're already covered under. The differences are minor, minor, minor. You won't notice a thing. And so it should all be covered similarly. So, so you guys should fly the plane. Yeah. Let's read some quick excerpts from the complaint, which of course, in these kind of things, you throw the kitchen sink, you'd be very dramatic because if you don't say it now, you don't often get to say it later. But some of the quotes are pretty damning here. Boeing made a calculated decision to rush a re-engined aircraft to market to secure its single aisle market share and prioritize its bottom line. In doing so, Boeing abandoned sound design and engineering practices, withheld safety critical information from regulators, and that it just kind of goes on like that. Another excerpt is... The 737 MAX is now grounded worldwide because of its unsafe, unairworthy, and contrary to Boeing's representations, distinct from the 737 family of aircraft that preceded it, which SWAPA pilots have flown for years. Had they known the truth about the 737 MAX in 2016, it never would have approved the inclusion of the MAX as a term in its contract and agreed to operate the aircraft for Southwest. So this language is pretty damn harsh as one does in a complaint like this, but it's really hard to see how in just a couple months when the aircraft is ungrounded that they're just going to happily fly this thing and the public shouldn't read into this damning complaint and not be concerned. But I'm sure that's exactly what's going to happen. Well, I mean, yeah, and we've talked about this, I don't know how many times is that whenever the 737 MAX starts flying again, people are going to get on it and they're going to fly it and that'll be that. Yep. Pretty much. I mean, most people are never going to see this complaint, but it's kind of weird to go from that complaint of this aircraft is unsafe and it betrays safety culture to, oh, they updated the software. Don't worry about it. It's good to go. That's a big gap to reconcile. Right. And especially since, you know, the Southwest pilots are involved in making sure that when the aircraft returns to service, that it's operational. And John Ostrow had an article about focusing on the revisions to the checklists that pilots deal with in the case of non-normal operations, the quick reference checklist and things like that, that those are going to be put to a group of pilots. And, you know, Southwest pilots have filed a lawsuit, but it's no secret that other pilot groups, most notably, I mean, in very recent conversation, American Airlines pilots have said, you know, not quite the same thing that, that Southwest pilots have, but not dissimilar things. Maybe not going so far as to file a lawsuit, but they're not happy. But they're also involved in making sure that when the aircraft comes back, they're going to be operating the aircraft safely. Yep. So we'll see what happens with that, see if the Southwest pilots get their back pay. And at the same time, another article was out about how Delta pilots are making gobs worth of overtime pay as Delta increases the amount of flights it's operating to fill in the capacity gap from United and American having a portion of their fleet grounded. So I guess what goes around comes around. Yeah. I mean, and this is you know one of the things that we talked about, I think- way back when this first happened is how the gaps were going to be filled. And that answers one of the questions, you know, Delta's flying more planes. And I mean, we talked about, you know, American and United's pulling in, what was it? 2737 700s. I mean, yep. you know, flight finds a way. Nice. But in the interim, the NTSB issued seven safety recommendations. So not any crash reports, those will be issued by Indonesia 
and Ethiopian investigators, respectively. The NTSB is a party to those investigations, and as a part of that, they felt that they had seen enough to issue seven recommendations to the FAA. And those recommendations are meant to address concerns about how multiple alerts and indications are considered when making assumptions as part of the design safety assessments. So basically what the NTSB was saying was, we accounted for things going wrong, but in the design of the flight deck, what was perhaps not accounted for was how the cascading failures or the unique combination of many failure alarms and warnings went into pilot awareness and response. Yeah, that, that sounds annoyingly close to what happened with Air France 447, where they were just overwhelmed with conflicting and numerous warnings that at a glance just made no sense and they didn't know what to make of it. Right. And so the NTSB issued seven separate recommendations that basically boils down to make sure that when you design things, you understand the safety impact of those designs. Right. Don't just assume that everyone behind the stick or the side stick is an amazing, overly capable human being that sometimes at the best of pilots can be overwhelmed. And it's impractical to think that they can deal with literally any situation that the aircraft throws at them. Yeah. And three of the first recommendations end with the phrase, pilot actions that are inconsistent with manufacturer assumptions. So a big part of what the NTSB is saying is, yeah, exactly that. You know, Maybe we need a better handle on who's flying and what the human responses are going to be to an abnormal situation versus what the assumptions that are that you know, are being made by the manufacturer. In this case, Boeing, but, you know, as well. I mean, you reference Air, Air France 447, that, that was an Airbus. So I think that the FAA is interested in, in the NTSB's recommendations. However, they are recommendations only. You know, any change to FAA regulations has to come from the FAA. Yep. Shall we take a quick break? Okay. And then speak with Andrew Poor. Our resident, huh, I never thought about that expert. Huh, yeah. Huh. Yeah, we didn't think of that. We'll be right back after a short break with Andrew Poor. Welcome back. We are once again joined by Andrew Poor, who is in operations for a U.S.-based cargo carrier. We'll give you till the end of the interview to try and figure out which one. But Andrew, welcome back to AvTalk. Thank you. Happy to be back. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? Going well. So, Andrew, you are not only in operations for a U.S.-based cargo carrier, but you are currently working your way through dispatcher school. How's that going? Uh, recently finished that up. That has been an adventure. Glad I did it. Uh, I've been meaning to for quite a while now, but learned a lot, and it's a good experience. I, I would recommend it to many of my aviation professional friends who uh, are looking for an interesting career path. Let's start with the basics. What is a dispatcher? Sure. So it's one of those things where, you know, even within the industry, let alone outside the industry, not a whole lot of people are aware of what it is. The basis of it is under U.S. regulations, 
the captain shares operational control with the dispatcher. The dispatcher's running the flight plan, generally building the route that the flight's actually going to take, looking at things like notams, you know, whether there are runway closures, any sort of hazard to the flight, and then most importantly, weather. That's probably the bulk of what the schooling process covered was weather-based, whether it's just the weather theory side, uh, you know, clouds, storms, etc., or all the various aviation weather reports, like, you know, METARs, TAFs, pilot reports, all the graphics, that all has to be covered in the school as well. So it's very uh, heavy on the weather. Uh, that's, a, that's a big aspect of what a dispatcher is doing in support of flight crews. So I use this, this app that tracks flights I have scheduled to fly on. And a few hours before each flight, it says, the captain has filed your flight plan. And here it is. And I know that's nonsense because the captain's not, you know, five hours ahead of time uh, filing the flight plan. He's on a beach somewhere, at home even, <laughs> or in a cab. Is that you as a dispatcher doing that? Yes. Most airlines are going to have kind of in their computerized flight planning system, uh, they'll just have an automated function that will file that to all the appropriate ATC units, you know, the different centers. Like if it's a domestic flight, say going Chicago to Los Angeles, it would go, you know, to Chicago Center and then probably Kansas City Center, Denver and all that. So files it through to all of that digitally and away they go. So what's dispatcher school like, I guess? What what do they what do you learn on day one? You really do start with weather, at least in my case. There's a few different formats of dispatch classes you can you can do. The one I did was part online and part in person. But like I said, you start out with weather because you kinda need all that to do the rest of it. You know, later on you get into the manual flight planning. And when I say manual, you have a flight computer wheel and a slide rule and charts and weather reports, and you write the numbers by pencil, you know, that's... Wow. I, uh, I, I don't expect you to be doing much of that day to day. No, not so much, but it helps to see how it's done initially, I suppose. A little stressful, but you get through it. The other thing is there's also a written test, just like any other FAA certificate or license. So the school I went through recommends that you do that first. And it's like the other FAA tests where you go to a flight school or wherever that has one of the FAA's computer testing systems set up. And it is 80 multiple choice questions from a bank of over a thousand. So they tell you to memorize essentially all thousand some of those answers. Just to give yourself the best fighting chance, I suppose. But the question bank for the written test for a dispatcher under the FAA is the exact same as the question bank for the airline transport pilot written test. Hmm. I'm actually looking through your Twitter feed right now. I searched your name and the word dispatch for photos. And from May 26th, you tweeted, today's dispatch homework. You were calculating alternate minimums. And mm -hmm. all I see is a notepad with a whole mess of numbers, things crossed out and circled. What's going on there, for instance? So alternate minimums, meaning whether you can file a certain airport based on the weather as an alternate. You know, there are certain conditions under which, depending on the type of operation under which you need an alternate, sometimes you don't, depending on the airline, the weather, the routing and so forth. But alternate minimums calculating. Most airlines are going to have what is essentially a secondary option on how to calculate 
alternate minimums. There will be published alternate minimums at every airport, but most airlines are using this other method to do it. And you have to look at all the approach minimums for an airport. And depending on whether you're using one NAVAID as your instrument approach or two, there's a different number you have to add to those approach minimums. So it's uh, visibility and ceiling, essentially, that you're adding to these approach minimums to calculate alternate minimums. And it's it, it's a little wild to wrap your head around at first, but once you do it oh, a couple dozen times, it starts to click. So, And a dispatcher's job doesn't end once the flight plan is filed. If I'm not mistaken, you're working with the flight crews and, and you're not necessarily working just one flight, but maybe a, a handful of flights or, or something like that at a time where you're working with the flight crews to understand their conditions as they develop en route or say there's some type of emergency on board, whether it's a medical emergency or mechanical emergency, and you, you're working with the crew to get them to the appropriate airport or deciding whether or not to divert and things like that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, that's usually referred to as uh, flight following by the dispatcher. And, you know, you'll use tools like ACARS to send text messages, send and receive text messages from the aircraft. Sometimes, depending on where you're working, you could use a sat phone to get in touch with them. So, yeah, you're supporting the flight beginning to end, basically. And one thing that I didn't really know before going to dispatch school, but I guess, you know, I kind of should have understood in the back of my head was that at a... 121 flag or domestic airline, not a supplemental, which is where I work right now, but that's a very technical distinction I won't get into. But at an airline such as, you know, Delta, United, Spirit, the bigger ones that are carrying passengers, a dispatcher actually has the authority to declare an emergency for the flight. So say there's a communications failure or there's an overdue flight or something like that, the dispatcher sitting, you know, in their operations center can actually declare an emergency for a flight. I didn't know that either, but I guess it makes sense since the person who's most closely following the flight other than the flight crew is is that dispatcher. Right. So what do you hope to do now that you've completed dispatcher school? Are you going to, you know, you work at a cargo airline currently, are you looking to apply this on the cargo side or, or looking to get into the passenger or are you still kind of exploring your options? Still exploring my options. You know, I'm still relatively new to the industry, so I'm I'm looking out for anything that catches my eye, but I'm interested in promoting aviation safety in any way I can. So I'll keep looking for just the right opportunities as time goes by. So if someone listening wanted to go down the same road that you are with dispatcher school, is there a set of kind of prerequisites that you would recommend folks have under their belt before they started dispatcher school beyond maybe taking that FAA test before starting school? Yeah, you know, as far as like kind of concrete prerequisites, uh, you know, I'm not really sure I have anything, but you want to be kind of familiar with what it is you're getting yourself into because there are people that go to dispatch school seeing that it's inexpensive versus being a pilot or going to uh, A&P, you know, mechanic school and things like that, but don't realize the complexity of what they're about to start studying. So, you know, do some reading, particularly on weather and maybe even, you know, aviation weather reports and things like that. And that's probably the key because if you're going to struggle with all the weather concepts, then you're going to be left in the dust and not be able to catch up. So, 
So know how to translate a, a METAR before getting into this. Yeah, that would be very helpful. So we also wanted to talk to you about your current job because last time we spoke with you, you were working for a separate but similar cargo carrier. And we discussed at length a number of the random cargo shipments that you had planned for and facilitated. And I think if folks have listened to the previous episodes, they'll know what we're talking about in the 225,000 pounds of ketchup. Mm, yum. But currently, you're in a um, not so food-related shipments, but a little more of a dressier side of things, shall we say. Yeah. In one way, I guess it's kind of similar in that it's it's like a consumer product you don't expect to see being flown in bulk on on cargo aircraft. It's not the kind of, you know, it's the kind of thing you expect it's arriving by ship, you know, on a regular basis. So coming from Colombo, Sri Lanka to Columbus, Ohio, there's a particular women's clothing and undergarments brand based there in Columbus with their main distribution center. And that's who we're flying for. We're doing a, a flight a week or so on an MD-11 freighter. So upwards of 150,000 pounds of these types of products every flight. So it's different for sure. That's rather shocking. Like you said, I'm struggling to imagine why that is not something that's done by freight, by shipping yeah. over the ocean. Like that's not something I'd imagine as a priority item that has to get there in a dedicated MD-11. That's kind of crazy, especially from Colombo to Columbus. That's hilarious. Now, is this a thing that you're going to be doing all year round? Or, I mean, the, the timing makes me think that there's some sort of Christmas related, like there was a production issue and maybe they just couldn't get them on the ship prior to that or, or something like that. Or is this like a new thing that, that's going to happen all the time? You may have a point. I think the contract does run up until around Christmas time, if I remember correctly. So you may be onto something there, but still, it's, it's quite a bit of cargo. So it's interesting. So uh, 150,000 pounds, how does that work to get from Colombo to Columbus? Well, the MD-11 is, it's a pretty good airplane when it comes to payload range, but it's not quite as good as say the 747 or the 777. So two technical stops along the way, two fuel stops. So we're going Colombo to Dubai, DWC, World Central, and then Dubai to Shannon, Ireland, and then to Columbus. So three legs. Do they ever get customs inspected in route during the technical stops? And like, what do you, what do you guys haul? Well, it's, it's a bunch of women's underwear. Yeah. The, the Irish tend to do that a lot. Actually, they'll do ramp checks and that sort of thing. So probably I'm, I'm sure that's happened already, to be honest with you. So, so is there anything else that's been of note lately in your, your neck of the cargo business? Well, right now we're kind of in the midst of it, uh, doing a concert tour in South America where our MD-11 is essentially just following along with a band in South America and from, well, we started in Mexico, we did Brazil, and then I think Peru is up next. So that's always interesting. You never know what's going to happen with those sorts of trips. I mean, to be fair, the, the last time there was a, a dedicated cargo aircraft wandering around with a band in South America needed an engine change. With the Iron Iron Maiden. That's yep, always a possibility, especially with MD-11s with old CF-6s on them. I mean, they're, they're good engines, but you never know. 
Oh, remember, that one wasn't because the engine went bad or anything. It was because the tug destroyed it and half the plane. <laughs> well, that that too. Like I said, you never know. I mean, especially in our in our side of the industry, you know, I mean, we're we're big on the charters. We're big on the ACMI. We're kind of like one of the high fly type airlines of the cargo side. So uh, we're always exposed to interesting phenomenon and, you know, whether it's aircraft damage on the ground engine problems, bird strikes, and you never know where it's going to happen. So we do have ride-on mechanics. We carry a flyaway kit full of as many spare parts as we can manage. And it's an interesting side of the business, that's for sure. So when something like that happens and you need to use parts from the kit, does the aircraft then return to home base to pick up more things or, or is that just kind of a you fly without it until you're eventually back it varies we have you know a person in the office dedicated to tracking flyaway kits and so forth and sometimes we'll try to just ship items to meet up with the airplane the next time it has a day or two sit you know to do maintenance or that sort of thing so uh, you know they do the best they can to kind of keep ahead of it and keep parts moving. But sometimes, you know, it'll go back to our maintenance base and they'll try to replenish on a larger scale. Ketchup, underwear, in a year's time, who knows what we'll be talking about. But the next time something interesting is in one of your planes, we definitely want to hear about it. Andrew Poor, operations at a U.S.-based cargo carrier. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely appreciate it, guys. Thanks, Andrew. Welcome back. Thank you. I never know what we're going to end up talking about when we talk to Andrew, and I did not expect slide rules and women's underwear. No. What's next? We've gone from ketchup to underwear to what What could we possibly move to from there? I mean, the next time we talk to him, we're going to be talking, it's going to be like Operation Dumbo Drop or something. Ooh, that could be fun. I, that's what I'm thinking. So while you were wandering around Vietnam... Almost. Not quite. Oh, this, almost. this news we're referencing next broke while I was on the flight to Vietnam about 12 minutes before we hit a six-hour Wi-Fi dead zone over the North Pole. And there you so go. So I got a, got a little bit of it, a taste of what the hell. So what Jason is referring to and what I think everyone's reaction was when the news broke is that Delta bought 20% of LATAM. Yeah, and uh, Latam turned around and gave a collective middle finger to American Airlines, which was unexpected. Delta turned around also, respectively, and gave the middle finger to uh, Goal, which it had a partnership with, which is no longer a thing. And everyone just kind of sat there saying, what the hell just happened? Yeah, did not see that one coming. No, that was stealthy. Rarely in this industry do you get something that's so- Not even a whiff. Big- not, it's so big like that that there isn't, it wasn't even an indication that something was happening. I think it even caught American off guard that that was happening since Latam and American have a pretty cozy – or had a cozy relationship. But nope, not anymore. That, that's mm. gone. Delta chomped off 20% of Latam. They have foregone their – I don't even know if they mentioned it. I think they gave it one line in the release that they'll be ending their relationship with Goal, which is funny because Goal actually has Delta branding inside their aircraft on the bulkhead. Who knows if they saw that coming? 
And Delta continues their march of acquiring 20% of whatever airline it feels. So Delta gets 20% of the airline and they get the A350 order book. Yeah, there's some interesting stuff there. So I think they take five rather soon and then further orders out in the 2020s go from LATAM to Delta. So the five they get soon, do we know if those are the ones that are currently in LATAM livery but operated by Qatar? I'm not sure. That seems like something that could be possible because I, I can't imagine Qatar needs the extra aircraft right now given its geopolitical issues. Let's say that could be. Delta will have to completely gut and refurbish those aircraft to its own specs and, and cabin classes. But that's interesting and probably extremely smart. It gets A350s that it recently deferred orders. I guess these may have been a, a better deal because it really needs to start thinking about replacing its 767 fleet, which is aging rapidly. Well, and the A330neo was also in a push for that too. Right. So it, it'll be interesting to see where that ends up. But they end up, I think they end up with 15 total. A350s, I think it's five right away or right away in aircraft delivery terms. And then 10 over the next, I want to say five years or something like that. Yeah. So, so yeah, that'll be interesting to see. And then American is left with nothing really. Nothing. They're SOL on this deal. And I I can't imagine they're happy about it. They lose a major South American partner who had a lot of connecting metal for them. In New York, JFK, down in Miami, they had a lot of connecting flight opportunities, which they will not anymore. And you know, it's I think it's worth noting that American and Latam had been working towards a joint venture, but that was stopped by a Chilean judge that said no. And, and so they were kind of put into limbo there. And that's where Delta really saw its opportunity. Yeah. So who does Delta own 20% of these days? LATAM, China Eastern, I think. I don't think it's 20% of China Eastern, but it's some good chunk. Who else? I know there's others. You tell me. I don't know. Uh-huh. I know there are more though. Did it buy a chunk of WestJet or was that just a joint venture I think that's thing? just a joint venture thing. Uh, what about Virgin Atlantic? These are all good questions that I don't have an hmm. answer to. Well, if you know, bother Ian about it. <laughs> Podcast at fr24.com. So yeah, that happened or is happening or and will happen. It'll be interesting to see what Goal does and there's been some speculation of, you know, will Goal and American do something together? That would be an interesting thing to me, but I can't imagine anything happening soon. Yeah, it's pretty funny actually. A couple weeks ago, I put out a tweet saying in five years time, every airline is going to be owned by IAG or Lufthansa Group. And and someone, I'm I, sorry, I forget who you were, replied with Delta owning 20% of everyone else. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, that happened. There you go. <laughs> it didn't see that coming. But super forethought on whoever said that. <laughs> we have to find out if they knew something that, that we didn't right? at the time. So this week, the Operation Matterhorn wrapped up, which was the repatriation effort for Thomas Cook UK passengers to get back to the UK from wherever they were. Over 50 partners contracted by the United Kingdom's Civil Aviation Authority moved over 140,000 passengers back to the UK 
on hundreds of flights. So a massive undertaking, the world's largest peacetime repatriation effort is now complete. And the final flight was, of course, the Highfly A380, a fitting end yeah. to that effort. Wait, Highfly A380? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that was involved. I thought it was just the uh, Moss A380. No, they had the Malaysian A380 and the Highfly A380 were all uh, Interesting. All Yes. And my favorite aircraft that we talked about last time, the, the Maleth Aero A340-600, yeah. uh, which only comes out for the good stuff. So yeah, there there's a, a good chunk of the former Thomas Cook wet lease aircraft are now in Thomas Cook livery without the titles. And so they'll they'll move on to wherever they go next. Whoever needs the, the Avion Partners A320 fleet. We'll see where they go next. But the, the Thomas yeah. Cook branding is coming off and, and it's come to an end. Yeah, we very quickly went from there are not enough aircraft in the world to make up for the 7.3 MAX grounding to there are too many aircraft in the market to pick from. Yeah, so it, it'll be interesting to see who picks those up and how long they sit for. Because I, I can't imagine they'll be sitting long. No, they've got to go somewhere pretty quickly, I'm guessing. And speaking of airlines that are done when last we spoke... XL Airways was in zombie mode. They had stopped selling tickets, but they were still flying, which was a, a weird thing. But now they're done. Yep. The head that's, has been cut off. The zombie it. is dead. They're no longer a thing. They're, they were hoping for a last minute bailout. That did not happen. And unfortunately, XL Airways is yet another 2019 victim of airlines that have departed for the last time. So not a good situation as far as the end of September, beginning of October for airlines goes. And today, or in the past couple of days, more bad news for your favorite airline and mine, Jason. Wow Air might not be coming back as quickly as we thought. No way. It takes more than two weeks to restart an airline? I From scratch? Shocked. I am shocked. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So the delusional woman in charge of um, resurrecting Wow Air with a whole bunch of other people's money. Highly skilled and ambitious entrepreneur. For complaints, sure. email Jason directly. <laughs> sure. No, this, this woman is crazy to think you can restart an airline in two weeks when they, they have no aircraft, they have no gate rights at any airport. Obviously, that time has come and gone. You cannot do it that quickly. So maybe now they will restart in December. And I am not holding my breath because that's just ridiculous. So you're saying you won't be booking for the inaugural? I'm saying there probably won't ever be an inaugural because this is ridiculous, especially <laughs> starting up flights to Iceland in December. Like, come on. That's not peak. I, I hear it's I hear it's beautiful that time of year. Sure. I hear the sun comes out two hours a day. Uh, if you're lucky. Yeah. Oh, so let's close the show with some equally ridiculous news. Ooh. We'll do the good, the bad, and the stinky. How's that sound? Okay. All right. I, I like it. So this happened almost you know right after we recorded the podcast last time, but I felt we just had to talk about it. Because it was all over the news it was when I was in Vietnam, even. Everywhere. Even in Vietnam, the local news had this playing <laughs> nonstop. So uh, not many people are familiar. Everyone knows like the big trucks, but how do you cater a regional jet? And the answer to that is a glorified golf cart with some cases of water on them. And apparently when you park one of those and don't 
set the parking brake or leave it in gear and a case of water falls on the accelerator, you end up with an out-of-control catering cart and the opportunity for incredible heroism. Yes, and incredible damage to aircraft that apparently some people wanted to save. Yeah, I mean, it's probably, I mean, easily, I don't know how much a catering cart costs. I'm going to say a couple thousand dollars to, to modify a of golf dollars. cart. Do, yeah, do, dozens of dollars. Versus an ERJ-145, which is probably hundreds of dollars. I mean, my valuation this point. of aircraft, I, I'm not If they broke this sure. one, they'd have to go to the desert and find one of the other thousands there. Sure. So, but it might take them a while, like a day or yeah. two. Yeah. But I'm sure you've all seen the video by now, but if you haven't, just Google it. A lot of people standing around on the ramp in, in Chicago watching this cart go round and round and round and round in circles that are ever closer to the nose of the aircraft until one of the ramp employees decides, all right, enough of this crap. I'm going to actually do something about it. And what was it, a pallet loader? He just kind of- No, no, it was, it was a pushback tug. Oh, the pushback tug, he just drives it straight into the golf cart, tipping it over and stopping it in its tracks, probably one or two rotations away from the aircraft. Yeah. And my favorite part about this whole thing is that there are people standing around going, you know, everybody back up, you know, just kind of stay out of its way and, and we'll see what happens. Don't, don't want anybody to hurt. I mean, the, the video is shot from the terminal by the gate area. And so he comes running from the left side, of the, just sprinting, tries to grab the thing rather unwisely. And I was like, no, I'm, I, I, I don't feel like dying today. Then Bad idea. Let's rethink on it. the pushback tug. And this all happens in like 10 seconds and just nails the thing with the pushback tug. And it was incredible. And my hat is off to that young man. Yes. I think he, uh, American said he's a five-year veteran of Envoy and I hope he's getting a bonus this year. A bonus and something, you know, give that man a raise. Give him the golf cart. Uh, probably doesn't want the golf cart. Take the pushback tug on me. Yeah, yeah. So that was the good. Now comes the bad. Everyone knows that you need two things to get through security at the airport. You need an ID and you need well, a ticket. Well, you only need technically one of the two of those. And apparently in Orlando, you might not even need one. Yeah, this was not good. Apparently... In Orlando, a woman boarded a Delta flight. Uh, first of all, she got through TSA security without ID or a boarding pass, uh, allegedly by showing a selfie of herself. Yes. That raises all yes. sorts of questions. Did not have a boarding pass. I do not understand how one clears TSA without either of them, let alone one or the other. And then somehow managed to get on the flight, which you only need the boarding pass. But how the hell did she get on the flight without a boarding pass? I guess she just snuck on. But one important note is that you actually do not need ID to fly domestically. If you forget your ID in a pinch, you, if you can prove who you are and the TSA can verify that in some sort of publicly accessible databases, then you can still fly. So if I ever forgot my ID, I could show them, I don't know, my Twitter profile or whatever, and that might be enough for them. But how you do that without ID or a boarding pass just confuses me to no end. Yeah, I don't know. When I traveled through Los Angeles a few weeks ago, about a month ago now, I didn't have to show my boarding pass, but I did have to show ID. 
Yeah, so TSA has trialed, and I think they've rolled this out to a number of airports where you don't show your boarding pass, you just scan your ID and it looks through the database and finds your flight information. It varies airport to airport. I've only seen that once, I think at Dulles maybe. But to not be able to to prove either way that you're flying, that's, I don't understand how this was allowed to happen. Twice. Yeah. Once at the TSA and then once, and then I guess once she to get just up. snuck on. Yeah. But Wow. Not good, but the flight didn't take off. After they boarded, they realized someone's there that's not supposed to be there, and they took everyone off the aircraft and hopefully gave this woman a, a stern talking to and at least one night in jail, I hope. Yeah, I, I don't know how long she spent, but they didn't let her get back on the plane. That's for sure. Nope. 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 Let us end the show on a stinky note. Mmm, stinky note. Oh, you, you, you smell my, my dinner cooking? <laughs> that's exactly what it is. I hope you're enjoying some some durian for dinner. That sounds delicious. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. So this is not the first time that this particular fruit has caused a diversion. In parts of Asia, there are regulations about carrying durian or transporting durian because it does in fact smell so bad. But this was an Air Canada Rouge flight in Montreal. So- Montreal isn't the first place I think of when I think durian. Uh, I, I don't know about you. Nope, but apparently the smell on board was so bad that the pilots actually had to put on their oxygen masks to breathe. Yeah, they, they had no idea what was making the aircraft smell so bad. So they assumed some type of electrical issue, perhaps an air quality issue. They didn't know after they returned to Montreal and safely on the ground. Oh, it's the durian that stinks. Of course it was. That happens all the time, every day. So glad everything worked out. And, and this is not the first time this has happened. I mean, that, that's, no, that's if, what- if there are, are rules on Asian airlines about carrying durian, then this has happened before. Right. And I mean, it's just, I've smelled it once and that was enough because they don't smell good. Let's see. I think there was a, a Jetstar flight a few years ago. There was a Sujaya Air in Indonesia in 2018, 2017, 2018, last November. They were transporting through it and all, everyone was complaining of it. And uh, they had to offload the fruit before passengers would get on the plane. So yeah, I guess if you're in search of a new snack or something like that, have at you. Sure. But uh, don't bring it on the plane. Nope. (laughs) On that note. On that smelly, smelly note, this has been episode 68 of Avtalk. If you like what you hear, or if you'd like to hear more about durian, please let us know in a review of the podcast. We don't want to talk more about durian. No, we don't. But if that's what people want to hear, I mean, that's we have to give the people what they want. We can point them in the right direction. Maybe we'll do like an offshoot podcast, like a, a durian-focused podcast or something like that. Durian Radar 24. There you go. See? A new site was born. Go to iTunes or whatever Apple is calling it these days and leave the podcast a review and a rating. It helps people find the podcast and wherever you might listen to it, ratings and reviews are always very appreciated. If you have any questions, comments, or anything like that, talk to us directly, podcast at fr24.com. We do read every email and I make sure that Jason reads them twice. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and thank you for listening. <laughs>